Welcome to the Good Life Revival Podcast, where we explore how to create thriving and sustainable habitats for humans and more than humans alike. I am your thriving human host, Sam Sycamore, coming to you once again from the Redwood and Tan Oak Sanctuary that I currently call home here in Northern Coastal California on an oddly chilly morning here at the very end of July, 2019. I'm told that summer doesn't really begin around here until August or September, but when I compare the climate here to that of my old Kentucky home with its sweltering 90 to 100 degree days and suffocating humidity (laughs) punctuated by sometimes violent thunderstorms, summer, as I know it, will probably never arrive here. And honestly, that's perfectly fine with me. I am quite content with the daily routine of coastal fog rolling in overnight to gently moisturize my garden most mornings before it burns off to reveal a beautiful, cloudless, warm, sunny afternoon pretty much every day. The seasons progress so slowly and gradually here, and that slow pace is mirrored by the plant growth that I observe, and perhaps by my own daily lifestyle as well. Back in Kentucky, I got used to the rapid rise and fall of seasonal foods. You know, the average window for any given edible wild plant might only be about two to four weeks in the Ohio River Valley. Whereas here in the Bay Area, I've been eating wild blackberries for almost two months now. And if the number of unripe berries is any indication, I could easily have a steady supply rolling in for another month or two at least. The biggest challenge by far of living out here off-grid is contending with the need for water during the half of the year when it really doesn't rain. I mean, yeah, like I said, the the coastal fog offers a nice gentle misting for plants to take in, but not nearly enough to penetrate the soil down into their root systems. And that's where Rob Avis, my guest for today's episode, comes in. If you have even a passing familiarity with the permaculture movement of the last decade or so, then chances are good that you've come across Rob's work before. Rob began his career as an industrial engineer in Canada's booming petroleum sector before having one of those moments that I think more and more of our peers seem to be having every day, which is, what does it all mean? What am I actually contributing to the world? Does my work serve to make the world a better place overall or a worse one? This line of questioning would eventually lead Rob and his wife Michelle to quit their conventional engineering jobs and to set off on a multi-year international quest to figure out what it means to live in harmony with the natural world and how they might put their engineering skills to use in, in designing and implementing regenerative systems where humans, and more than humans alike, might be able to thrive in the co-creative process of life. And if you're hearing all that rustling behind me as I'm recording this, uh, that's my dog Jojo playing with uh, sticks and stones right next to me out here in the garden. (laughs) Anyway, through their design and consulting work with Verge Permaculture and now Adaptive Habitat, Rob and Michelle have overseen the creation of hundreds of adaptive permaculture-based living systems and inspired many countless thousands of people to pursue the same agenda, whether personally or professionally. At the very end of 2018, the couple published Essential Rainwater Harvesting, a guide to home-scale system design, which is book 11 in the Sustainable Building Essentials series curated by New Society Publishers. And it may look like a slim volume resting on the shelf, but crack it open and you will find an immense wealth of technical information about how to design and install a serious rainwater catchment system for your home and garden. Through the course of our conversation, Rob and I discuss his background, the basics of rainwater harvesting, how to think your way through the design process, and also the importance of real experience and authority in a world so thoroughly saturated with regurgitated second-hand and third-hand information 
often shared by folks with little or no practical experience in forming whatever they are purporting to teach. I really appreciated this conversation, and I'm so glad that there are folks like Rob out there who have chosen to withdraw from the conventional paradigm and instead put their their highly technical skills to use, engineering the thriving, sustainable future we'd all like to see. I think you're really going to dig this one. But before we get into it, I just want to say thank you all so much uh, to all of my subscribers over on Patreon at patreon.com slash goodliferevival. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it is a crowdfunding platform, sort of like Kickstarter or GoFundMe, but geared specifically towards serial creators like myself, people who are pumping out new stuff on a regular basis. If you can imagine that this podcast is like a lecture series that I'm conducting in a bustling public square, then Patreon is like the hat that I would pass around at the end of the lecture that you could toss a few bucks in if you appreciated it. The one major difference in this analogy is that Patreon encourages you to subscribe to my work on a monthly basis so that it might be financially feasible for me to devote most of my time from Monday to Friday on this work. If you'd prefer to offer financial support on a one-time basis instead, uh, you could choose to toss a few bucks in this other hat that I pass around over at paypal.me slash goodliferevival. But yo, this podcast is now and forever 100% free for anyone to listen to. And if you can't afford to spare a few bucks to keep me going, don't sweat it. You could pause the show right now. Don't worry, I'll still be here when you come back. <laughs> uh, you could pause the show and take a moment to leave an honest review and rating through your podcast app. Sounds like a minor gesture, but it really goes a long way towards exposing more people like you and me to this show. Or, you know, don't do anything. <laughs> just keep listening. That's fine. I'm just glad you're here. All right, I'll keep this part brief. That's all I got to say. Now, let's hear from our friend Rob Avis. My name is Rob Avis, and I run Verge Permaculture, which is a, an, education, an education company in Calgary, as well as Adaptive Habitat, which is our consulting company. And we teach permaculture design here in Western Canada. And we do consulting right around the world on resilient homes, acreages, and farms. Both of us are engineers, and we kind of bring an engineering approach into most of the things that we do. And so our kind of claim to fame, if you will, is the integration of engineering, permaculture, and, uh, and biology, essentially, into one kind of unified design system. We've been working kind of in this vein for just over 10 years. And before that, we both had thriving careers in the oil and gas industry. So we've made a pretty big, we made a pretty big turn about 10 years ago. Uh, well, more than that, about 15 years ago now um, to t take on this new direction. Right on. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for coming on to talk to me. Um, I, I've been aware of your work for gosh, several years now. I, I think you were probably one of the first permaculture designers who I heard on podcasts like Permaculture Voices and the Permaculture Podcast with the homie Scott Mann. Um, so it's, it's a little wild to me that, that here I am talking to you all these years later. Uh, but I, I really appreciate all of your work and especially, as you mentioned, um, your efforts to integrate real hard science and engineering into the world of permaculture. Um, I, I'm curious, how did you get your start as a permaculture designer? You know, what was it that led you to, to leave the, uh, the conventional paradigm behind and pursue this path? Yeah, good, great question. I was getting ready to put in a multi-kilometer pipeline uh, to bring natural gas to a new facility that I was designing. And um, as a project manager, you have to make decisions on a fairly regular basis. And so the decision that I was getting ready to make that day, I can remember the day, 
I was getting ready to cut down an enormous amount of boreal forest and it was just crushing me. And it was crushing me for reasons that people don't often think about. Number one, it's like the obvious reason I have to cut all these trees down and mulch them basically. But number two was that I was basically part of the consumer culture that wanted that natural gas. And, you know, I heated my house with natural gas. I drive a, a petroleum-based vehicle. And so how could I sit there and pretend to be greater than thou uh, when I was part of the very mechanism that was demanding this fuel? And it's funny, I'm pretty sure we live in a simulation or in the matrix because that <laughs> very same day, I got an email in my inbox from a good friend of mine here in Calgary, and he sent me Jeff Lawton's Greening the Desert. Mm. And I said, wow, this guy is using all of his life energy to make the world a better place. And the best that I can say about my life is that I'm just maintaining status quo. And so that was my introduction to permaculture. And shortly after seeing that video, I called my wife, who was also working at a large petroleum producer here in Calgary. And I said, you know, it's time to quit our job and travel the world and try and determine whether or not these myths that, that are being perpetuated in the industry that we work in are absolutely true. Perhaps there's another way for humans to coexist on this planet. And so our journey began from there, and we, we traveled the world. We went to Denmark, learned about renewable energy for six months. We, we volunteered at an institute there. We went to Africa, most of Europe, most of the U.S., most of Canada, most of Mexico, Australia, and uh, Middle East. And everywhere we went, people had different myths, they had different stories about how humans needed to exist on this planet or how we could exist on this planet. And they were all different than the myths that we had at Calgary. And so when we finally returned, after having done all this stuff within renewable energy and permaculture and sustainable design, we started Verge Permaculture. And we started teaching, not knowing whether anybody in Calgary, which is the birthplace of the oil sands, the, the belly of the beast, so to speak, hmm. whether anybody would actually show up to these programs. And we were pleasantly surprised that the city is full of what we call in the closet greenies and the, re and the rest is history. Right on. That's, that's so amazing. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about uh, in your travels. Um, was there, was there anything that you came across or learned that, uh, was particularly ex surprising to you, like something that you really didn't expect to uh, to get out of out of your your travel experiences. Yeah, there were lots, um, but probably the big ones. You know, being that we were engineers and in the en energy industry, our first foray was to figure out how to repower the world, which is why we ended up in Denmark. And mm. Denmark made a decision in the 1970s during the oil embargo with regards to whether to go nuclear because they don't have the oil resources that, that we have in North America or even in the Middle East, or to invent a new technology that had never been invented before, aka wind. And they obviously chose wind. Um, and so when we were there, we recognized that their myth was very different than ours and that they did not have the limiting beliefs around energy. And I would say not, maybe not even limiting beliefs. I mean, we all vote for the... We, we typically all vote for our job. And, and so really that's what's going on in Alberta. And, and so um, what we learned in Denmark was that we actually have all the technology to repower the world. It's not actually the liability or the problem that, that gets talked about in the petroleum industry. But we really have no, we haven't made the same progress, I should say, in the feeding of the world part. And, um, and so that was probably our biggest insight was that the world is moving towards being repowered and it's, it's going at an exponential pace today. It's going at an exponential pace in Denmark a decade ago. Um, and we're only just starting to have conversations about what it means to actually refeed the world. Mm. And so that was our big insight. And we came back and we realized that we couldn't just address the energy issue, we actually had to look at it more holistically, which is really what led us towards uh, permaculture 
because permaculture is the only design system that we're aware of that actually looks at all of the components of human habitat. So food, energy, water, shelter, waste, and brings it all together into one system. So that was probably the biggest insight of all of our travels. I see. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, we we tend to think that like the the solutions still need to be figured out when when in reality we have everything we need uh, aside from the perhaps the the social or the the political impetus to actually carry this stuff out. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's all it's it's from an engineering perspective, we tend to get really focused on the, the how, um, but it really is a societal and social issue. Um, and it, because of that, the weak link, I think, is still primarily education. So once we have enough people, and it doesn't even need to be that much, like 3% is probably, uh, is, is known as kind of the minority rule. So once 3% of a population adopts a certain behavior, the rest of the population follows suit. And so you think about like kosher salt, like we basically just need to get the same kind of market penetration of kosher salt, which was, you know, not very much, not that long ago. And now everybody just uses it because, because people that aren't Jewish will use kosher salt, but people that are Jewish will only use kosher salt. And so it just makes sense that all salt is kosher. So we need to kind of reach that tipping point for permaculture, regenerative ag and, sustainable building and renewable energy i see yeah that, that's a that's a good analogy and um it, it works equally well for um the the topic of rainwater which is uh technically the reason why uh, we're connecting today um you and uh your wife michelle um wrote the book uh, essential rainwater harvesting um which is super awesome super useful um, I'm, I'm so glad that this resource exists out in the world. Uh, you know, it's, uh, the, the question of rainwater, it's very much like the, the kosher salt thing, right? Where like, if, if enough people start doing it, we would just take it for granted that that, that is, is how it's done. Um, but I, I'm curious uh, of, you know, when we talk about permaculture and this, this holistic view of, of um, getting by, you know, <laughs> just surviving, um, there, there's, it can be really intimidating to figure out, um, where, where to fit in, where to start, you know, where, where to even begin. Um, and, and so I'm curious what led you to create this book on, on rainwater harvesting, uh, given that you could have theoretically written a book on any of, uh, any of a million different elements of the, the holistic lifestyle. Yeah. So water can be thought of in any ecosystem as the fuel inside of the dragster or inside of the engine. And so one of the things that we are very big on when we teach a permaculture design course is this, this very simple mantra. It's worth the entire listen of this podcast just for this one little mantra, hmm. which is water access structures. And so we, we need to figure out our water systems first um, because without water in the engine, the engine stalls. And then access. So once you know how water is reticulating through a site, then uh, you can instantly delineate pretty much every element, actually, because every element in the landscape either wants water or it doesn't want water. And so access is one of those elements that doesn't want water. But if it's designed properly, it acts like a roof. And so it makes sense to harmonize access with water. So access doesn't have to fight with water. If, if you understand how your landscape works, it can actually... Um, enhance the water harvesting features on property and then structures which is all of the structural things that we put onto a site and that could be food forests that could be houses that could be stock watering troughs fences um, and so um, in society today what we do is we tend to put the access in first then we put in structures and then we deal with the liabilities that res result as um, after the fact without because we don't account for water essentially and so that's why we have sump pumps that's why we have stormwater management issues. That's why we have um, drainage pipe around our house. And so it's just a, a kind of a backwards order of operations, essentially. And it creates a lot of expensive liabilities that end up being borne by insurance companies and homeowners. And so when we get those, that order of operations correct, the results are like, this sounds very kind of cliche, but it's abundance. And, and so everything that wants water gets it. 
uh, passively and everything that doesn't want water doesn't get it. And then the things that don't want water typically are going to provide water to the things that do want water at, a, at an enhanced effect. So you think about a house doesn't want water, so otherwise it'll rot. And so the house actually becomes a water harvesting element and then we put other elements around that. And, and so when we get the water piece right, everything else kind of follows passively uh, in, in a very simple way. Um, and to do any of the other elements first um, doesn't really do that initial element um, justice, essentially. And so when we look at the rainwater harvesting space, you know, we, one of our travels had taken us to Australia where rainwater gear is sold off the shelf. And when we looked at the rainwater harvesting space in North America, it's kind of going in the wrong direction. And the reason it's going in the wrong direction is that the publications around rainwater harvesting don't fully account for the most recent research associated with rainwater harvesting science. And so instead of writing a book that was about how to meet code, we wanted to write a book that really properly represented the state of the science so that you can still design a system that meets code in your specific jurisdiction but why not go beyond code and build a system that actually produces high quality drinking water? Because the two are not mutually inclusive. You can design a system to code and not end up with high quality drinking water. Um, it's kind of that, that same minority rule. And so if you design a system that meets best practices and it meets code, then you're gonna get the buy-in from the local jurisdiction. Plus you're ultimately gonna meet your objective of having the highest quality rainwater. And so that's, we wanted to build something that would essentially form the foundation of, for success on uh, everything from an urban lot all the way up to giant farm. And because the book was limited to 50,000 words, we had to focus in on rooftop rainwater harvesting. Um, the topic of rainwater harvesting is far broader than just collecting water off of the roof. And eventually, uh, we've actually just signed another book deal, and that's going to allow us to go from zone one, so around the house, all the way out to zone four, which is the rest of the acreage or farm. That's really cool. Yeah, um, I, I come from the Ohio River Valley uh, in, in Kentucky, which is consistently one of the wettest places in, in North America, I believe. Uh, it's, it's really rare to go more than a couple weeks without a pretty significant rain event. And um, this past year, I've been living in, in coastal California where it basically doesn't rain for about six months out of the year. Um, it's total, it has totally reframed how, how I think about water use, water conservation, and, and it's, it's so much more of a precious commodity than, than I ever really gave it credit for when it just fell out of the sky on almost a daily basis. Um, but uh, when, when you're consulting and, and teaching people about rainwater harvesting, what, uh, what are some of the most common misconceptions that come up? Like what are, what are the biggest fears or concerns that your clients might have that you have to address? Probably one of the biggest ones is the fear of biofilms forming on the inside of tanks. Uh, that's an interesting one and people get really concerned and, and it's amazing how many people are actually getting into their tanks and cleaning them on a regular basis. This is actually counter to uh, the goal of creating high quality drinking water. Uh, biofilms are one of our best friends when it comes to rainwater harvesting and have been shown to be, in fact, biofilms and the sludge layer that forms at the bottom of the tank are basically the two living components inside of an inanimate tank that produce incredible ecological services for the person that's managing that system. So they've actually found, uh, they've done research in uh, Australia, Dr. Peter Coombs and Dr. Anthony Spinks have done research on these two biological entities and found that uh, when they look at a multiple spectrum metal analysis that, and the one that comes to mind right now is lead, that lead has been found in concentrations of up to 300,000 times the concentration in the sludge layer when compared to the center central water column in the tank. And so, and they looked at copper and zinc and arsenic and all the different metals. And what that provides very, it provides a lot of, uh, 
very strong evidence towards is that the biofilms in the sludge layer are actively removing these contaminants from the water column and in cleaning it up. And so when we remove those, we're actually diminishing the effect of the tank, which is ultimately just a bioreactor. So a bioreactor is essentially just um, a system that has surface area, and in permaculture we call that edge, and it's harboring beneficial microbes that are essentially starving to death. And so because of the low nutrient concentration of rainwater, they, these microbes seek out anything that they can get out of the water column themselves, which is why they hyperaccumulate these toxins, but they also have been shown to pull out insects, they pull out pathogenic microbes, uh, and ultimately are forming um, one of the most important components in a successfully designed rainwater harvesting system. To the point where when they've done research on these biofilms where homeowners are topping them up with chlorinated mains water, that the biofilms are being detrimentally affected and reducing their capacity to actually effectively clean the rainwater. Huh. That's so fascinating to me. You know, when you, when you hear words like sludge, uh, it, it doesn't, it's not the most appealing word in, in the world, right? Like you think like sludge, oh, I, like I got to get that out of there. That's, that can't be good. Uh, but in fact, it's, it's exactly what the system needs. You know, I feel like there's, uh, there's a good analogy to be made there um, between what we've learned in, in recent years about the, um, our, our gut biome, right? Like the, the microflora uh, that, that reside inside of our bodies. Um, we, we have this idea that like we, we need to clean them or like, like, you know, we treat them with antibiotics and, and really the problems arise when we actually disrupt the, the natural process that's already in place there. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up the microbiome because I feel like we're on the verge of a probiotic revolution. So the last six years, seven years has been about antibiotic, uh, the antibiotic revolution. And so I think that that's been, that's been very important to the evolution of humanity. But we've seen the abuse of antibiotics and now we're recognizing that the system is far more complex than we had originally um, thought it was. And I'm talking about the world and, and the ecology and the ecosystems that we depend upon. But what we're recognizing is that our microbiome is just a dendrite of, which is essentially not necessarily identical, but a rhyming, if you will, pattern. So rhymes are not identical, but they're similar mm. uh, pattern of our ecosystems. And so, uh, a rainwater treatment system, which essentially starts at the roof, goes to the gutter, moves through the pipes, into the tank, and then through the pump, through the pipes, and into the house. If we think about that, and this maybe is not the most appealing analogy, but if we think of it as an intestinal system, uh, what we're doing is we're actually creating a long train, which is basically all an intestine is, and we're creating surface area that will harbor and the surface area is equivalent to the villi in our uh, intestine and it harbors beneficial microbes that ostensibly do very similar things and so we can't just look at and, and this is probably this kind of ties into the question you asked earlier about an insight if you harvest rainwater poorly you cannot make up for your sins by just putting a few additional filters on the back end so mm. poorly harvested and managed rainwater systems can't be cleaned up effectively you need to get the best practices right uh, and then the filters on the back end of a system are kind of your insurance policy but they're only acting as an insurance policy they're not the primary treatment mechanism within the system so that's where coming back to what i said earlier which is that you can if you design a system to code it's not necessarily going to meet the objective of high quality drinking water but if you a design a system with best practices and then add the code layer in, you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to get um, high quality drinking water off the back end if that's your goal. For someone who's new to the idea of rainwater harvesting, um, what, uh, how to phrase this, what is, what is the simplest and, and least expensive way to set up a, a system to catch water? Like maybe 
um, let, let's say you wanted to set up a system to catch like a few hundred gallons at a time to irrigate your backyard vegetable garden. Like what, what are the minimum required features uh, that you need in, in that system to, to catch and store water that you're not actually going to drink? Yeah, it's really simple, actually. So you'd start with an above-grade tank, and you'd site it close to where you, the rainwater source is, so wherever your downspout's going to be on the roof. And the minimum thing that you require there is uh, making sure the vegetation around your house or wherever the roof is is cut back, so we're not getting a pile of vegetation on the roof. We want to make sure it has good. the roof itself has good solar access so that it can dry out. And uh, part of the sterilization process that occurs on a roof is through uh, solar irradiance. And that the gutters are properly sloped, uh, which surprisingly enough is a, is a mistake that we see often. People don't like sloped gutters because it makes their house look unsquare, but making sure your gutters are properly sloped. And then you want to get yourself a, a rain head or a rain filter. And so these are just little tiny uh, plastic, typically plastic boxes with a really fine stainless steel mesh on them. And they, they run about 50 to 70 bucks. You can buy them on Amazon or online. And all of the water from the roof will go through this. And so this filter acts um, in a number of ways. Number one, it prevents any bugs getting into the tank uh, because the bugs can't get through the mesh. And number two, it's a self-cleaning um, filter mesh. And so it's actually designed to be on a 45 degree angle so that as water hits it, it will segregate any of the particulate coming through the water. And if that particulate builds up on the screen, because it's on a 45 degree angle, the subsequent water coming onto the, the, the filter mesh will actually clean off the surface. And so this basically picks up the rainwater from the roof, from the downspout. And then from there, you would switch over to a PVC pipe of three to four inches, depending on the size of the roof. And then that goes to a large above grade tank and uh, and then from the tank, depending on where your garden is relative to the tank, will depend on whether you need a pump or not. If the garden is downhill from the tank, then you can probably just rely on gravity. You get about uh, 10 kilopascals per meter of pressure, or I believe it's half a PSI per foot. Uh, I'd have to look that one up because we're in a metric country, but you can Google that. And so if your garden is designed downhill from the tank, then you can probably provide all the irrigation you need with, if you've got enough elevation change between the tank and the garden just with gravity alone. If not, then we recommend you put in a, an inexpensive Y strainer and then a pump to provide the flow and the pressure that you require in order to run the irrigation system that you want. So literally, I mean, depending on the size of the tank, the roof is likely already there, 70 bucks for the rain head. Let's say you're going to buy a big tank, so probably a thousand bucks there. And uh, if you don't need a pump, then you're pretty much just a few extra plumbing fittings and you're done. And if you do, you're probably looking at another five, 600 bucks. So $2,000. And if you've got a good rain resource, you're pretty much done. Right on. Now, let's say uh, you've got this, this basic system set up. Um, you're, you, you've fallen in love with it, you know, you're sold on, on rainwater harvesting and you're ready to scale up and take it to the next level and actually start drinking the water that you're storing. Um, what are the components that come into play at this stage? So believe it or not, 3 million Australians drink out of tanks that are set up that way. Wow. Without any filters. So huh. once the biofilms are formed, you could drink that water, assuming that the roof surface area that we started with was smooth and made of an appropriate material. So let's say galvalume as an example, which is a metal roof um, that, that is made out of a, a zinc aluminum alloy and it's actually very inert. Uh, so assuming you've got a good roof, then you're pretty much, if your goal is just to meet high quality drinking water, you can meet it with that system. Um, hmm. If you need to meet code, and in North America, we have a new code uh, that's written by the CSA, Canadian Standards Association, and NSF, National Standards Foundation, I believe, which is the American version of the CSA. And so they've actually acknowledged that we're, we're neighbors of Canadian Americans, <laughs> and they built the first code in history together, which is about rainwater. And depending on if your municipality or county has acknowledged it, then they're going to require a, um, a double barrier 
filtration system. And so that would typically be a spun filter that brings you from 20 micron down to one micron. So now anything moving through that is, is going to be very little particulate in there. Anything basically anything below one micron will pass through that. And then you would run it through something like a Dalton filter, which is a ceramic filter similar to what you'd use camping. And that will bring it down to half a micron and that will filter out any microbes and some viruses, not all viruses, but there shouldn't be any viruses in your water. And then in order to meet code from there, you'd likely need a UV light uh, in order to kill off any viruses that got through the half micron filter. And so from there, you'd have uh, very clean water. If you are concerned about agricultural VOCs and SOCs coming off the fields around you or any other VOCs or SOCs that are aerosol in the air, um, then you would put, probably put a carbon filter onto the uh, filtration train to remove those as well. I see. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to me that, um, you know, the, what was the number, three million Australians just, just go with the, the most basic system. And uh, last I checked, I think they're, they're doing okay as far as uh, health goes. <laughs> yeah, you know, they have no massive epidemiological um, health issues as a result of drinking rainwater. In fact, there's been more issues with centralized systems than there have been with rainwater systems, if you look globally, because... When one thing goes wrong in a, in a community-based system, you can harm a lot of people. Mm. But when you have decentralized systems, people are generally more committed to maintaining those systems because they know that their drinking water is coming out of it. And if they have a problem, the most that it's going to harm is whoever's directly link, drinking out of that system, which could be you know one to five people kind of thing. And ironically, there was a study done that we referenced in our book um, that looked at the overall health metrics of children um, and they compared them to kids drinking mains water versus rainwater and guess which one had a slightly statistical increase in sickness and that was because of the chlorination which comes back down to the microbiome that's so interesting yeah so why why do you suppose i mean i'm, I'm sure this is getting into the weeds a bit why do you suppose the the codes are as as strict and stringent as they are given that we have all this data showing that uh, a lot of the stuff isn't really even all that necessary. Well, so I would say that the data is not readily available to North American regulators, which mm -hmm. is why we wrote this book. And so our goal is to change that. But um, you have to understand a regulator's life. It's, it's a thankless job that <laughs> um, we should all take a little bit more time and appreciate our regulators because ultimately if uh, you know a regulator that is doing their job correctly is, is there to protect the public and it's really a job that's filled with asymmetries in that if they do something progressive and it fails they get lambasted and if they don't do anything and it fails they get lambasted but they probably aren't going to go to jail as a result of it um, and so there's really no, we have not incentivized our regulators to take risk. And uh, part of the reason is because we don't pay them enough, probably. Uh, and uh, part of the reason is that they, they don't want to uh, end up in jail, essentially. And so we need additional mechanisms in society that uh, allow for and fund progressive research that will uh, allow regulators to not uh, be concerned about taking these risks, so provide them with the right resources and information so that they can move forward uh, with their jobs uh, with confidence. And as the world moves towards stricter and stricter, um, um, like a, a litigious um, legal kind of um, liability kind of mentality, this is just going to get worse. Mm. and um, like the legal system is good in the sense that it forces people to have skin in the game but they can also prevent progress and so we need to have the ability to facilitate that progress which is really where I think universities and polytechnical institutes can play a really important role uh, to do the kind of testing that's required but 
the good news is about rainwater is that we've got 100 plus years of empirical data and the science has finally caught up to why Australians, there's actually 6 million people in, a, in Australia that live off of rainwater, 3 million without filtration. Mm. And you really can't get a better case study than that. So we just need to get our regulators up to speed with the research and show them that the liability on properly managed rainwater systems is actually lower than the liability with regards to mains water and start building a culture around that type of uh, system. And it's not a matter of um, it'd be nice to do, it's actually essential. As we, as California, as a perfect example, California, the Midwest moves further and further into a water-scarce world due to larger populations, um, irresponsible usage. Um, we can't afford to just let our rainwater just wash away. We've got to build systems that hold it back and spread out its use over time uh, for a whole plethora of reasons that we can get into in future podcasts. But uh, it's an absolutely essential resource that we have got to foster and steward a lot better than we're currently doing. Hmm. Yeah, amen to that. And I'm, I'm really glad uh, uh, to, to hear your perspective on the, the role of the, uh, the regulators in all of this. You know, I think... Um, especially in the realm of like permaculture and, and sort of alternative design, alternative lifestyle stuff. We, we sort of have this idea that like, well, the code inspector is just this bully who wants to come in and uh, poo poo all of my cool, radical, innovative ideas. Uh, like uh, there's that Joel Salatin book that's called like everything I want to do is illegal. <laughs> and uh, I, I think about that all the time when I'm, I'm, trying to reinvent the wheel as it were. But um, one thing I, I, I wanted to bring up with you, uh, we talked about this uh, previously when we were uh, uh, getting ready for this, this interview, um, is the idea of like um, authority and, and experience in, in this realm of permaculture. You know, something that I've been really dismayed to observe uh, over the years as, as I've gone deeper and deeper and, and gained some practical experience of my own, you know, it's, it's become rather clear to me, unfortunately, that there are more than a few hucksters out there who would love to sell you on the idea of permaculture, but they don't always have much in the way of useful or, or applicable information to share. You know, sometimes it feels like the people who are most vocal about this stuff tend to have the least amount of actual experience that they're drawing from, uh, whereas those who know what they're doing are often too busy doing it, right? To, to devote their time to, to talking about it. And, and so I'm curious uh, with that in mind, as someone who is clearly very knowledgeable and, and very experienced, uh, both in the conventional realm and, and in this permaculture realm, um, do you have any advice for, for people who find it difficult to wade through the, the sheer volume of information out there? Like, like are there things you would specifically look for or, or ask for in uh, a permaculture teacher or, or designer? Man, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I think, and this is just my own confirmation bias, but um, for me anyways, when I look at anything, um, I look for kind of a combination of pride and humility. And um and it's, it's a very slippery slope because if you have pride in your work, it's very easy to become cocky and, and, um, and egotistical about it. But somebody who is proud of what they've done but recognizes that, uh, that, that we still really don't know anything as humans at all. And so we go into everything assuming that we're, we're incorrect. And, and, and so I... I just ask a lot of questions and um, this is not just within the permaculture realm. This is any realm that we uh, exist in. We, you know, the unfortunate or downside of the internet right now is that we have moved towards an attention economy and the average person is willing to pay attention to you for about three and a half seconds, <laughs> which really preferentiates loudmouths and <laughs> it, 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 um, it creates opportunistic the people that are that make the most noise uh, generally have not always but generally have the least signal 
and um, it tend to focus our attention in that direction. And I think this is the onus is really on individual consumers or people that are looking for information and or instruction or tutelage to really come to terms with what it means to be living in an information economy and in the same way that hunter gatherers likely needed to understand how to recognize patterns of a saber-toothed tiger and when you were about to get eaten in the attention-based economy we don't have saber-toothed tigers anymore but we have shysters and um, they can eat you just as effectively as a saber-toothed tiger can. (laughs) And so we really have to increase our bullshit meters, essentially, and and learn what it means to differentiate between somebody that's selling, um, you know, in in the trades, in the septic industry, we call kind of these people that they have what we call a red light guarantee. As soon as you see the red lights on their truck, they're gone and and, and that's the end of it. And so <laughs> the same thing goes on YouTube and Facebook and I'm sure in the podcast world too, um, really learning how to sense whether somebody is, is real or not um, is becoming a very important skill and we're all learning it at the same time. So Humility is a big thing for me. I, I really seek that out in the way that people talk about themselves. And, um, and and to be honest, there's just not that many people on social media that has that has humility. You, you can see it right away. It's like instantaneous as soon as you hear them talking about themselves. And uh, that's one of the, the key things that I look for in everything. Mm. Yeah, right on. I really appreciate that answer. You know, that's that's something that that I've always been I've always tried to be really mindful of since I, I started sticking my neck out is that um, that balance between the, the pride and the humility, feeling feeling proud of your accomplishments and, and, and what you're capable of, but also, yeah, just just being humble about it, not not being a dick about it. <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> right on. Well, hey, I, I want to be mindful of your time here. Uh, uh, this this has been an awesome conversation, and I, I hope we can connect again because there's there's a lot more I'd love to talk to you about. But um, before I let you off the hook here, I have to ask you the question that I ask of everyone who comes on my podcast, which is, how do you define the good life? So for me, it's um, feeling in control of my life energy in my time and being deliberate about the choices that I make, knowing that there are an abundance of opportunities out there that I can pursue with my life energy, but being sure that I'm saying no to the ones that don't fit for me. And if I get that right and I, and I take on the right amount, then a friend of mine says that it should feel that life is going in slow motion. So when, when life is going in slow motion for me, it means that I'm in flow. It means that I've chosen the right things to work on. I'm enjoying them. And I haven't overcommitted to things. And, uh, and it makes enough room in my life to be a good dad, be a good husband, um, be a good contractor or consultant, uh, be a good teacher, and, um, and, and to take care of myself as well, uh, you know, to make sure that I have downtime and that I'm eating good food and around good people and, and uh, laughing a lot. Very cool. Yeah, I, I love that answer. You know, that, that's actually something that I, I was reflecting on myself uh, in the last couple of weeks. Just that feeling that like when things are going really well and when you're, when you're really truly like in the flow and enjoying what you're doing, it, it's almost as though time itself seems to kind of slow down. And, and yeah, that's, that's how you know you're doing it right. <laughs> totally. Right on. Well, yeah, um, if folks want to learn more about you and the information and services you offer, where should they go online? Yeah, so vergepermaculture.ca is where I've spent the last 10 years blogging. And um, you can find us on YouTube at Verge Permaculture as well. And if you're interested in the Rainwater Harvesting book, that's available at New Society Publishers, and it's called Essential or sustainable essential rainwater harvesting. And uh, I think that's the title. I should know my own title. I think it's essential <laughs> rainwater harvesting. Uh, I think that's uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
anyhow, and uh, if you want to get in touch, uh, you can find out how to get in touch with us at all of those places there. So thanks so much again for the interview, and I look forward to future conversations. Yeah, yeah, likewise. This, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you very much. And that was my conversation with Rob Avis. I went into this conversation assuming that it would be all about rainwater harvesting. And that would have been fine. I mean, that's great. You know, I, I think this is really valuable information that needs to be widely circulated. But what I've really taken from this conversation more than anything else is the value of authority, especially in this nascent world of sustainable lifestyle design. Before I started making this podcast, I was really drawn into this world by a handful of pretty well-known figures within this realm who I would prefer not to name because I'm, I'm really not interested in, in petty drama. But I was really taken in by their charisma and their ability to articulate thoughts and feelings that I was just beginning to unpack for myself. And then I started doing the podcast, and I got to know some of those folks professionally and even personally, and came to learn things about their reputations and, and their actual experience, you know, who they are behind their public image, um, things that most people who follow them maybe don't ever hear. In some cases, what I learned is that they're really sweet and genuine people who are deeply concerned with fostering change through education. And here I'm thinking specifically of folks like Scott Mann of the Permaculture Podcast and Peter Bauer from Rewild Portland, for example. And I do want to name their names because uh, I think it's important to shout out the people who are true assets to their communities, leading by example. Hey, Jojo, that's enough. I'm doing something right now. In other cases, what I've come to learn about many of the self-appointed gurus out there is not so pretty. Many of them can talk a good game about their skills and experiences, but if you talk to the folks who've worked with them on any given project, uh, you might hear a very different story. One of, perhaps, narcissism and stubborn dogmatism, uh, preaching what they do not practice, and claiming expertise that they cannot actually back up. And here is where, again, like I said, I'm not interested in naming names. That's not what this is about. In this era, where the problem is not a lack of information, but instead an extreme excess of often bad information, it is more important than ever before to acquire the skills of skepticism, vetting sources, and demanding proof to back up claims regarding health and sustainability and all the rest. Don't fall into the trap of believing a charismatic leader just because the things they say seem to conform to your worldview. In fact, you should be extra skeptical of those people in particular because you will often find, if you peek behind the curtains, that they are in fact co-opting your values and beliefs in order to sell you something. That's not to say that you should be inherently distrustful of everyone with a product or service, but again, we have to step our game up as, as customers and clients and fans to demand proof. Don't trust me <laughs> just because I took it upon myself to uh, step up on this little soapbox and scream into the void. I'm just some dude who studied philosophy and ecology and who likes to work with plants, and I can't seem to shut up about any of it. <laughs> I I'm not interested in playing to the beliefs that you already hold. In fact, I'm more interested in challenging your beliefs with ideas and perspectives that maybe you've never encountered before, and maybe I've never encountered them before either, uh, you know, before I spoke with whoever I've invited on the show. I've come to see my role here as one of a teacher and facilitator, 
and I had a hard time stepping into that role of teacher uh, until I came to understand that a, a teacher is really just the most enthusiastic student. And I have no problem thinking of myself as an extraordinarily enthusiastic student of life. That said, I'm not an authority about anything that I speak about here, and I must encourage you to be skeptical of anyone who claims to be an authority on any topic, either either explicitly or or implicitly, you know, through the way they they behave or, or speak about themselves. That's not to say that we ought to reject authority. Quite the opposite, actually. We need to seek out true authority in people like Rob Avis, who have the skills and experience and portfolios to thoroughly back up their claims. When someone tells you that they possess the knowledge to reverse climate change, or that they have the farm business plan that will earn you six figures in just a couple of seasons, or that they are producing the essential oils or medicinal mushrooms that prevent cancer and will cure your grandmother's dementia, you should be very, very skeptical of those people. What is the scientific basis for their claims? How many times have their extraordinary anecdotes been replicated? When put into practice, how does the end result differ from the theory on the page or in the video? And perhaps most importantly, what are they selling? We must remain diligent in seeking out high-quality information and pushing our public figures to cite their sources and demonstrate what they theorize about. Unfortunately, what I've found is that it's often the case that the loudest among us might actually have the least to offer in terms of substance. And yes, I am self-aware enough to recognize that I'm kind of calling myself out here with this. And indeed, I often question myself and ask, am I just another loudmouth <laughs> obscuring my lack of expertise with flowery language? I think the answer is no, at least I hope so. But ultimately, it's not up to me to answer. That's something that only you can conclude, dear listener. And I hope you ask that question not just of me, but of everyone who you look to for information and advice. No one possesses all the information. And the people we should seek to learn from are those who acknowledge their limitations and, and who point them out plainly for all to see. I think the gurus worth seeking out are the ones who will insist that they are anything but. But hey, that's just like my opinion, man. <laughs> now, it's up to you to form your own. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Good Life Revival Podcast. For notes and links related to this episode, you can go to thegoodliferevival.com slash podcast slash 65. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you appreciate my work and you'd like to see more of it, I hope you will consider tossing a few bucks into one of my digital tip jars, either as a one-time contribution through paypal.me slash goodliferevival or else by subscribing on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash goodliferevival. All music you heard today was composed by yours truly, including today's theme song, which is called Ode to Madrone. And that's a tune that I put together specifically for this episode and which you can stream and download when you become a subscriber on Patreon. That tune is built around a sample of a song from 1976 called Why Should I Forgive You by a band called Shock. So if you dig the overall vibe of my song, then uh, I think you'll really dig the source material as well. All right, that's all I got for this one. Uh, the sun is just beginning to peek through the morning fog as I'm recording this, and that means it's time for me to get the hell away from all of my electronic gadgets and go play with some plants. <laughs> Until next time, this is your friend Sam Sycamore reminding you that all of the components of a regenerative, adaptive habitat are waiting right outside your door. Are you ready to step out? 
The Good Life Revival Podcast is made possible by listeners like you. For more stories, perspectives, and knowledge encountered on the path back to nature, visit thegoodliferevival.com.